This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. And here is a noteworthy fact as we are on the cusp of the World Series, Philadelphia Phillies, versus the Houston Astros. No black players on either team. How is that even possible? For the first time in, I don't know, a zillion years. Um, not a single one. I understand that baseball is largely populated by white and Latino players, but that's just such a head-smacking moment. Which, if I'm running Major League Baseball... I would be concerned. I would be pretty concerned about that black. The other fact, of course, is that the Houston Astros won far more games than the Phillies and therefore are overwhelmingly favored given that pitching. But you never know. Uh, speaking of sports, just briefly, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers lost again last night. Three-game losing streak for Brady. First time he's had that since 2002. The Bucs with a 3-5 and five record. He's having a miserable season. He got, and he got sacked a lot, so it's not entirely his fault. But uh, maybe coming back was not such a good idea. And, of course, anybody writes about this says, yeah. And then you look at uh, the situation with his wife and what's going on there. Uh, tied, of course, to him unretiring. Anyway. I hope you have a good weekend coming up. Media Buzz is coming up. Sunday, 11 Eastern on Fox. Making lots of changes, some of which you'll hear about on this podcast. Um, a couple items here. Uh, Uber is going to start showing ads in its cars. Which doesn't seem like oh, that big a deal to me. When you consider the fact that, I don't know, you know New York City taxis have ads on top and you know, lots of things you get into show ads. Um, but what's interesting here is since Uber already knows something about you from your ordering habits and maybe you have Uber Eats, it could target the ads to you specifically, which is a little creepy. Let's face it. Jim Cramer, CNBC's mad money man, did a very abject apology yesterday. I mean, I've known Jim Cramer forever. There's a whole backstory of me and Cramer. I wrote about him once, and he ended up being the subject of an investigation, which is not my intent. It had to do with some of the stocks he was buying and selling. And then he was, you know, a top character in my book, The Fortune Tellers, uh, as he was in those days, before, I guess toward the end of the book, he was with Fox Business for a while, and then ended up at CNBC. But, you know, I, he was just a hedge fund guy, buying and selling large amounts of uh, stocks, and I watched him in action. And he became, you know, we became pretty good acquaintances. Anyway, Facebook 
stock has just cratered this year. It's lost $700 billion in value. And then yesterday, I guess the stock went down another 24% in one day. Kramer went on the air on CNBC and very, he was really looked broken up. He said, I made a mistake here. I was wrong. I trusted this management team that was ill-advised. The hubris here is extraordinary and I apologize. Well, lots of other uh, companies and people who recommend stocks for a living also blew it. But, you know, you followed that advice at the beginning of the year. You lost, what, 75, 80% of your investment. It was It's a spectacular miss for a guy who's stock-picking advice and nobody has a 100% track record. But a pretty, uh, a pretty big miss, and he took it very seriously. This was not, you know, flip banter. He was upset. Uh, this is pretty disturbing. Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, um, just getting this in, violently assaulted by some kind of assailant who broke into the couple's San Francisco home early this morning. The Speaker's office put this out. Uh, the assailant is in custody and the motivation for the attack is under investigation. Yeah, I can guess why the assailant just happened to go after the husband of the Democratic Speaker of the House. Uh, Paul Pelosi, who's 82 years old, jeez, was taken to the hospital where he's receiving excellent medical care and expected to make a full recovery. Well, that's a relief. But, you know, he is a very, very wealthy man. Therefore, they're a very, very wealthy couple. So I can't believe that somebody just broke into the house. I would think that they would have ample security. But we'll have to find out a lot more about that. Speaking of violence, and that wasn't my attention, you've all probably seen by now the um, police officer, Michael Fanone, who was just attacked by a mob at the Capitol on January 6th. He was beaten. He was kicked. He was attacked with a stun gun. Some of those people tried to grab his gun. One rioter threatened to kill him. Well, one of the guys who was leading that assault, Albuquerque Cosper Head, pleaded guilty to Salty Fanon and was given a seven and a half year prison term. And I think that's a good thing. There has to be accountability here. This is not, oh, you know, some people just went in and they were looking around. This is this guy, you know, his life was changed forever. He's lucky he's alive. And so very glad to see that. Uh, I mean, I don't celebrate these things, but if you commit a violent crime against a police officer, you should pay a very high price. Okay, story number one, Elon Musk, the chief twit, as he now calls himself, is the new owner of Twitter. The deal apparently closing last night. Today was the deadline. And he's a reluctant new owner of Twitter, obviously. I mean, look, Musk wildly overpaid for Twitter. Even when he made the original deal for $44 billion, he was paying a premium. And of course, the value of Twitter, along with a lot of other tech stocks, has gone down a great deal, which is, I think, one of the main motivations why he wanted to get out of it. It suddenly became a very bad deal for Elon Musk. 
But Twitter sued him, and there were all kinds of legal requirements that he couldn't just change his mind and walk away. And he was dragged into a Delaware court. And so one of the first things that Musk did was start firing people. You know, first he walks in and, you know, I told you the other day, made a video of him coming in with the kitchen sink. And look, when you spend $44 billion, of course you're going to get rid of who's ever running it and bring in your own team. Of course. Like you buy a football team, right? New owner, general manager gone. Coach gone, coaching staff gone, quarterback gone. You you bring in your own people, and and they were all expecting it. And he's fired like the the, the CEO, the chief legal person, the social moderator person. They're all gone, and you know that's the nature of corporate takeovers. You know he's taking the company private, which means Elon Musk can now do whatever he wants with Twitter, but maybe not entirely whatever he wants. What I mean is he he doesn't have any short-term pressure from Wall Street to get the stock up. It's now a private company. And so I may have mentioned this yesterday, but I think it's really important. Twitter's advertisers are nervous. Because Musk has said, well, you know, advertisers, do we really need advertisers? We have a different revenue model. And also the people who are nervous are the staff because of that leak where uh, Musk has told some of his uh, investors or potential investors that he's going to cut the staff from 7,500 to 2,000. I mean, you know, all the best people are probably have already left or are looking for jobs, you know, when you hear that kind of thing. Maybe he won't cut quite that many. But of course, like Twitter's now taking on a huge debt load. He's got to find a way to make some money. I don't think he bought it to make money, but he doesn't want it to be a further drain on his own net worth, the value of his Tesla stock and all that. Anyway, he puts out a letter to advertisers. Remember, this is the guy, and this is why... We're now once again having, I mean, I've seen people online knowing this was about, the deal was about to close, saying, oh, Twitter is going to descend into fascism. Like the guy's owned it for five minutes and they were already calling him a fascist. Why? Because there's this debate that began when Elon Musk, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, now he's got 110 million Twitter followers, said that he wanted minimal content moderation. And he also wanted to do away with permanent bans. You do something wrong, maybe you get a temporary slap on the wrist, and then you come back. So, of course, now everyone's expecting Donald Trump to be able to come back on Twitter, and lots of other people who have either been banned or or left may want to come back under Elon. It became this right-left thing in which conservatives are sort of cheering because they have perceived Twitter with some justification as being um, hostile to conservatives. The Trump permanent ban, I mean, here we are, what, two years later, being a symbol of that. And many liberals, and this includes most of the media, 
want more and more content moderation. They want to be able to ban people. They want, I mean, the way they would frame it is we've got to do away with hate speech and bullying and misogyny and racism and all that. But then who's in charge of making those judgments and where do you draw the line? Musk's general philosophy is, you know, you fight bad speech with good speech. You don't like what somebody said, you go post and, and you can and you have at it. But here's the thing. At least for now, Elon Musk doesn't want the advertisers to flee, and they are nervous. So he puts out this letter to advertisers in which he says this. Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences, exclamation point. Well, there it is. That's the olive branch. That's the, well, we have to have some content moderation. That is him backing off, um, bowing to some degree to the pressures of the marketplace, even though no stockholder can now pressure him, and saying, you know what? Of course, there have to be limits. Of course, there have to be things that you can't do and can't say on Twitter. How far does that go? Um, this is a great experiment. Uh, New York Times says that, you know, he'll be remaking Twitter without having to, as I say, you know, worry too much about Wall Street. Um, this was a victory for Twitter's board. They wanted this guy to take over in the best interests of their shareholders who will now get paid for their shares. Uh, and, and it is true that Musk kind of denounced the use of advertising, find a different source of revenue. Well, that's great, but that's not going to happen, you know, by Tuesday. <laughs> He's got to figure out a way to build a business model. Um, and they were a little worried about risky content. I mean, you know, if Twitter, be, you know, look, Twitter, here's the thing. Twitter is already a cesspool of lots of hate speech and garbage. Yes, some people get punished for it and kicked off. But it's not like... Um, it's great now. So I think that's the olive branch. You know, of course, we're not going to let things get out of control. You know, it's interesting because these tech billionaires and zillionaires and multi-zillionaires, um, you know, in the old days, they would just go out and, you know, buy 15 houses and more yachts and all that. Well, now they buy these social media giants. Jeff Bezos with Amazon. By the way, Amazon shares dropping 13% yesterday after a disappointing forecast. And there's talk that Amazon's going to have a really rough winter season. I mean, obviously coming down from the highs of the pandemic. So all these tech giants, you know, Facebook down 80%, Amazon having trouble. Twitter's had a lot of trouble turning even a modest profit. Not looking that great in Silicon Valley. But my, my larger point is now, instead of just, you know, living the life of luxury, they buy these giant e-commerce and technology platforms. And, you know, Musk, who some people love, some people hate, he's obviously eccentric and flaky and nevertheless has overcome the doubters in building not just SpaceX, but Tesla. Now he's got 
Twitter as kind of his plaything and do whatever the hell he wants with it. And we will keep an eye on that for you. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Okay, number two. It now looks like maybe Joe Biden won't be impeached. What am I talking about? Well, there has been a lot of talk among some Republicans as we head toward what I think I'm going to say at this point is the inevitable Republican takeover of the House, that when they have that majority, there will be payback, and part of that payback will be impeaching Joe Biden. But now that we're getting closer to the election, ah... maybe that's not the best thing to run on. You know, the day Biden took office, you had some Republicans, certainly not all, but some Republicans, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying he's got to be impeached. Dozen resolutions accusing him of high crimes and misdemeanors. But now, the New York Times informs us, top Republicans are seeking to downplay the chances that they will impeach Biden distancing themselves from a polarizing issue that could alienate voters just as polls show the midterm elections breaking their way. So are they just cooling it until after the election? Well, here's Kevin McCarthy, the likely next speaker. I think the country doesn't like impeachment used for political purposes at all. He has been quoted as saying, while he didn't rule out moving forward if something rose to that occasion, he said the country needs to heal Voters want to start to see the system that actually works. But he would be under a lot of pressure from the more hard-right members of his rank and file. And look, Donald Trump was impeached twice. Now, you can argue he shouldn't have been impeached. You could argue he shouldn't have been convicted. But it wasn't made up. I mean, one had to do with pressuring Ukraine, and the other, of course, was in the aftermath of January 6th. So... It almost is now becoming a common tool. Well, Republicans impeach Bill Clinton. The Democrats impeach Donald Trump. Now the Republicans are going to impeach Joe Biden. It used to be something that happened, you know, like once a century. Obviously, Richard Nixon would have been impeached and convicted uh, after the House Judiciary Committee voted in a bipartisan vote. That's what's been missing from all these other ones. Um to take impeachment to the House floor, and then, of course, Nixon resigned. Uh, Here's a fundraising letter from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Joe Biden is guilty of committing high crimes and misdemeanors. It's time for Congress to impeach, convict, and remove Biden from office. Now, you might say, what exactly is the charge here? Ah, privately, many lawmakers, uh, GOP lawmakers and staffers concede there does not appear to be any clear-cut case of high crimes and misdemeanors by Biden or members of his cabinet that would meet the bar for impeachment. But McCarthy hasn't sort of slammed the door. He has said, well, I don't see it before me right now. Also, apparently, it's unpopular. University of Massachusetts Amherst poll in May said 60, well, May is a long time ago, 66% of voters impose impeachment, including 44% who say they strongly oppose the move. But if that's true... Does that mean 33% or, you know, leaving aside whatever the don't know is or have no opinion? 
think impeachment's a good idea, or most of them Republicans, probably. Uh, I just think it would be an absolute, you know, this is not pro-Biden or anti-Biden. I just think it'd be an absolute shame if we devolved to the point that every time the House changes hands, the president of the other party, if there is a president of the other party, winds up getting impeached. If it just becomes par for the course. All right. Number three. You know, we haven't had the election yet. We're still 10, 11 days away. And I think basically the the Democrats are surrendering. I think there's a lot of hand-wringing and the media, which had initially been in denial, are basically saying, look, the House is going Republican and the Senate may go Republican too. You look at all those tight races in the Senate. So I think there's sort of the the advance obituaries. In other words, there's a lot of like, how did we lose Congress before they've actually lost Congress? And I think there's a very good chance that the Republicans will pick up not just the one seat they need to get Senate control, but possibly a couple more. Our Washington Post, less than two weeks before the midterms, the path to Senate control appears, appears uncertain and volatile. Polls show Democrats and Republicans running neck and neck in several battleground states. So, for example, you've got Pennsylvania, the John Fetterman disaster. You know, it was interesting. Joy Reid was one of those MSNBC hosts who wouldn't even mention, wouldn't even mention that Fetterman had a very rough night. And then last night she has Fetterman on and serves up a bunch of softball questions. And by the way, he did fine. Look, it's a very big difference between doing a easy interview with closed captioning and trying to keep up with the back and forth of, you know, 30-second rebuttal, 15-second rebuttal of the debate in Pennsylvania. And it's going to give Oz a boost. There's no question about it. Uh, it was a disastrous decision for Fetterman to debate. But also, you know, you have, for example, the Cook Political Report moving the race in Arizona. Mark Kelly and Blake Masters from leaning Democratic to a toss-up. And there's that pattern. Uh, Washington Post points out, yeah, Herschel Walker, now you've got the second abortion accuser. But that race was already within a point, the race between Walker and Raphael Warnock. And Walker is just denying, as he did to Brett Baer. The second woman, although obviously she's on tape and there are love letters and other stuff. Democratic incumbents in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia have been barraged with ads tying them to crime and inflation. Democratic groups have focused on abortion and the character of Republicans. So I just think that, well, I just think it's not looking good because when you say all these races are neck and neck, yes, you can say it's a toss-up. But the fact that they were two weeks ago, three weeks ago, not as neck and neck because the Democrats in several of those key Senate contests had leads of, you know, three, four, five, six, seven points shows you the direction in which things are moving. And usually there's a point, and I think we're at that inflection point now, where a a midterm election, which of course is a collection of, you know, 435 House races and a third of the Senate, breaks in a certain direction. And that's what I think is happening now. The Republicans clearly have the momentum. 
Democrats waking up to the fact that the economy and crime are salient issues that you can't just brush off while you want to talk about abortion rights and other stuff. And I think Joe Biden is getting the fact that he can't just go around uh, bragging about all the legislation he passed, much of it bipartisan legislation, and it's part of the discussion. But he's got to say, and here's what we're going to do in the next two years. I think that he's waking up to that. I think the Democrats are waking up to that. Here's a little tidbit on this. Rich Lowry of National Review is writing about Carrie Lake. Now, Carrie Lake, who's now ahead in the race for Arizona governor, she's one of those Trump-backed Republicans who's like all in on stolen election. And, you know, the media and the Dems said, wow, if we can get Carrie Lake, man, we'll just roll over her because she's such an extremist. Well, she was a television anchor for 25 years in the Phoenix area, and people know her. And her Democratic opponent, Katie Hobbs, is refusing to debate her. And it's pretty clear she's going to win. And that she, you know, I, do I agree with the stolen election stuff? No. But she has a certain charisma and so forth. So here's Rich Lowry saying, Carrie Lake is obviously not my kind of Republican. I thought her no nomination was political suicide, and I was wrong. Lowry says this a longtime TV anchor. She knows how to communicate. She's been running very effectively against the press. Who does that remind you of? And he posts a clip of her dealing with some hostile press questions. If she wins, that's a safe bet. And if Trump wins the nomination, a couple of big assumptions there, says Lowry, she checks a lot of boxes as a VP pick, a stop-the-steal true believer who, unlike Doug Mastriano, who's getting clobbered in the Pennsylvania governor's race, and his ilk, would have a demonstrated political viability. A governor from a swing state that Trump lost in 2020, a woman, a politician who has thoroughly absorbed the spirit of Trumpian politics as combat and theater, and a name that can generate big crowds. So it's just so fascinating to me. Uh, at this particular moment, Carrie Lake hasn't won anything, and already, and Lowry's not the only one, she's Trump's running mate. <laughs> who knows? It could happen. She'd be Trump's Sarah Palin, he says, except the match would be more natural. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, number four. Jack Schaefer, political columnist, is fed up with the idea that the press is responsible for Donald Trump becoming president in 2016 and possibly again. Um, he writes that the uh, about the delusion that a lackadaisical ratings mad media somehow elected Donald Trump to the presidency uh, is back in the conversation. And the argument is, he says, we were too soft on him in 2016. We handed a liar a megaphone and neglected to turn it off. We delighted in covering him because he delivered clicks. We failed to communicate how aberrant he was, thereby normalizing him. Uh, yeah, that's not how I remember it either, Jack. Um, and he says, look, if you look at what happened, the press constantly reported and criticized Trump for, beginning with his talk about Mexicans when he came down the elevator at Trump Tower, his lies, his denigration of John McCain, blaming 9-11 on George W. Bush, sleazy business practices, this is all his litany. Policy ignorance, flip-flops, 
um, attitudes toward women. No presidential candidate in memory outside of George Wallace received harsher coverage. If anything, the press denormalized Trump and said, you know, we basically had no chance. And yet, going into the second Republican debate in the fall of 2015, Trump was polling 30% out of 16 candidates. He ran against 16 other candidates, and he was a newcomer. So, for all of that, it is true. And now you get to the debate of uh, what? how do we cover Trump now, or not. Once Trump became president, says Schaefer's behavior didn't change. Schaefer writing in political, nor did the critical coverage end. To those who say the press failed to properly call out Trump for his many lies, please consult the news clips. The press did refrain from calling Trump a liar for the first two years, uh, but has since overcome that reluctance. Nowadays, many news media don't bother to grant him the benefit of the doubt. So here's the deal. Having covered Trump for years, having first covered him in 1987 when he put out The Art of the Deal, negative coverage helps Donald Trump. Nobody quite gets it. So Schaefer's half wrong. Yeah, he says, the press did its job. Yeah, we, we kicked the crap out of him. Not our fault. And of course, the press has been a very good foil for Donald Trump. Fake news and all that. The reason negative coverage helps Donald Trump is twofold. One, it means he's still dominating the news agenda. You call him every name in the book. And I've certainly been highly critical of him, particularly everything that's happened since the election, going back to the pandemic, uh, the, the unproven claims of a rigged election, and of course what happened on January the 6th. But he's at the center of the news agenda, which means he deprives other rivals, opponents of oxygen. And secondly, his base, his most ardent supporters, hate the press, despise the press, enemy of the people, all of that. And so if the press is after him, it binds them even more closely to Donald Trump. And the answer is not to ignore him, as some geniuses have said. Well, we just, you know, we shouldn't cover him. If he's saying the same thing, shouldn't cover him. You, can't, you have no choice, first of all. He is the odds-on favorite to win the Republican nomination, unless for some reason he decides not to run. Look, he's under investigation by the Justice Department over those classified documents. You're just going to say, well, you know, let's not really cover that because it just, you know, puts him in the news. Anyway. Story number five, Peace in the Atlantic by Yair Rosenberg about anti-Semitism. It's tied to Kanye, but makes an interesting point. Starts out by saying, hatred destroys the hater. And with Kanye now, you know, getting kicked out of Skechers and having lost Adidas and all kinds of other business deals, it does look like he has kind of self-immolated. Kanye West became the latest anti-Jewish conspiracy theorist to be undone by his own delusions. Um, in interviews and online, Ye's tirades took a depressingly familiar form. Unable to address his problems rationally, he resorted to the age-old avoidance strategy of pinning them on the Jews. Angered by a, uh, his estranged wife Kim Kardashian's public revelation that she had sex with her then-boyfriend in front of a fireplace, that would be Pete Davidson, whose father is of Jewish descent, uh, he just went off. But here's the insight, I think, that Rosenberg has. He says, 
Ye's estrangement from polite society might seem like a victory against anti-Jewish prejudice, certainly better than the alternative, but it will also fuel the very ideology it's meant to combat. After all, when an anti-Semite suffers consequences for falsely claiming that sinister Jews control the world, he can then point to that punishment as vindication of his views. In other words, you make anti-Semitic charges, you get punished for it. That's not always the case, but certainly isn't the case with Kanye. And then he says, you see, you see, see what they did to me? Rosenberg is on to say, for Jews, this is a no-win scenario. If they stay silent, the anti-Semitism continues unabated. If they speak up and their assailant is penalized by non-Jewish society, anti-Semites feel affirmed. Heads, the bigots win. Tails, Jews lose. This is the cruel paradox that has perpetuated anti-Semitism for centuries. Once more, he says, American society learned about Jews and Judaism, not from Jews themselves, but through the warped worldview of their despisers. And one other little note here, because this got some attention. There was a lot of social media uh, talk about a photograph of neo-Nazis putting up a banner on a big L.A. freeway saying, Kanye is right about the Jews. But Rosenberg points out this band of bigots has been hanging anti-Semitic banners at that site for years. People only noticed this time because it was connected to a celebrity. Well, that about does it. Thank you for sharing this time with me. Hope you have a great weekend coming up. A reminder about Media Buzz once again on Sunday. Hope you'll subscribe. And we're back here Monday. We'll see you then with more BuzzMeter. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.